This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Rumsfield Arms and Sundry. Rumsfield Arms. That can be arranged. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's Suburban Horror Week on Pod Cemetery with 1989's The Burbs and 2006's Slither. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Show me what you've got. Who directed 1991's The Silence of the Lambs? Uh, Jonathan Demme? That is correct. Bam! Nicely done. All right, Kelsey. What Lord of the Rings actress played Kristen in The Strangers 2008? Liv. Liv Tyler. Liv Tyler. (laughs) Liv Tyler. She played Arwen in The Lord of the Rings. That is correct. All right, Kelsey, moving on to our first movie of the episode, our classic film, 1989's The Burbs, written by Dana Olson and directed by Joe Dante, starring Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, Carrie Fisher, Rick DeComan, and Corey Feldman, and many, many more. What is The Burbs about? Before we get into it, I want to remind everyone that this was a recommendation. Awesome. Both movies were given to us by Wes. Wes, thank you very much for writing in this recommendation. Yes. I'm a very big fan of The Burbs. Kelsey doesn't think we should be covering it on the show. <laughs> I don't really think it's a horror movie, but that's just me. We'll get into the elements of suburban horror, I think, a little bit later, because I have things to say. <laughs> I love suburban horror, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I think if I was to do any, like, video essay on a subgenre of horror, it would be suburban horror. Interesting. Yeah. So, what is this one about? This one is about Tom Hanks, of all people, uh, being a suburban dad and his paranoia that His neighbors are serial killers. Yes. It's funny that you pegged Tom Hanks as suburban dad and you said, strangely enough, uh, he didn't want to have a kid in this movie. He thought it would ruin his image. (laughs) You know, he didn't want to be like a suburban dad type. And he was ultimately talked into it. Yeah, I don't think this typecasted him in the slightest. So (laughs) he had nothing to worry about. Tom Hanks, America's dad. Yeah. Maybe it did. It might have started us down that path. (laughs) But when you think of Tom Hanks, you think of him as like, now we see him as the strong male stoic. uh, But like every man, really. Yeah. But like somebody who you, you revere, I think. Should people watch this movie? Yes. Yeah. This movie's hilarious. It's fantastic. It's very funny. I love this movie. This is one of those horror movies that I actually really enjoyed as a kid, but it did scare me. 
I saw this when I was a kid, too, and it did not scare me at all. So <laughs> That's why it's really hard for me to understand why people call this a horror. Well, a lot of it has to do with suburban suspicion, which we'll get into uh, a little later. And maybe you weren't old enough to feel that. That's not why I was scared. I was scared of the crazy family. The uh, Eastern European sort of Transylvanian aspect of them. <laughs> Good, yeah, you should see the movie. Like, I'm not even going to say you can take our advice or leave it. You should take it. You should see the movie. Yes. And when we get back, we will talk about 1989's The Burbs. Walter Stark just took a dump on Rumsfeld's lawn again. Tom Hanks loves The Burbs. Oh! It's tree-lined streets. Mine, Walter! A paper on every doorstep. And a couple of human sacrifices in the house next door. Ray, this is Walter. No! The Burbs. Hey, honey, I think we should move. Starts Friday, February 17th at a theater near you. Consult your local listing. Kelsey, can you get us started? What, uh, what happens in The Burbs? We open on Tom Hanks waking up in the middle of the night... Uh, because his neighbors are making a loud racket in their basement. And he walks out of his house kind of almost like in a trance, I'd say. And he starts walking towards them. Hold on. Pause. We didn't talk about the universal transition in this movie. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> it transitions from the universal logo of the Earth, and it zooms in, uh, in into an actual suburb. Now... Everything in the movie points to this being a suburb of Chicago, but the zooming in actually implies like Ohio. Ohio or something like that. So a little discrepancy, but like the license plates say Illinois and stuff like that. So I just thought since we talk about how much we love these promo transitions, or at least I do, <laughs> uh, that we should at least bring that up. But yes, so Tom Hanks is walking over to the property of his neighbors, and the moment he steps on their property, a great gust of wind hits him. And when he goes back to his own lot, the gust of wind is suddenly gone. So there's obviously something supernatural going on, or maybe it's the way we rationalize things to ourselves? Perhaps. Okay, so next day, we get to meet all of our principal characters, and we meet them through what I consider to kind of a silly, funny way. The newspaper boy is riding around. Yeah. And very specifically on purpose trying to hit the people yeah. that he throws the newspapers also, at. Also a very suburban thing. The newspaper boy riding by on a bicycle tossing newspapers on lawns. Just a little bit distorted by him being nefarious. Yes. It hits um, Tom Hanks. It hits... Walter, the owner of Queenie, the dog. Okay, few things. First of all, Walter Sesnick is played by Gail Gordon. He's uh, He did a lot of stuff in like the radio era. You see pictures of him in his room with Lucille Ball kind of all over the place. Apparently he was good friends of her because they did some radio stuff together. Mm. Uh, that just happens to be the real life actor was actually friends with Lucille Ball. And that's why the photographs are everywhere. Uh, a, a little bit of implied story going on when they end up in Walter's house. But more importantly, Queenie, the yes. dog, 
is played by an actual dog who existed, obviously. <laughs> it's not an animatronic. Called Precious. And if she looks familiar, there's a reason for that. We already discussed a movie that she's in. Kelsey, what movie is that? Silence of the Lambs. She's the dog in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> in our poster for Silence of the Lambs on our website, she is the key feature of that poster. Yes. And then Precious, or Queenie, whichever you prefer to call her, runs over and poops on Rumsfield's lawn. And this is how we meet Rumsfield. Played by Bruce Dern. And he is an elderly... He kind of seems like a vet, but he's actually an arms dealer, so I don't know if maybe he's, he's probably both. a vet too. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and he has a very hot wife, which doesn't make any sense. Played by Wendy Shaw, who is the voice of the mother in American Dad. <sighs> Never, oh, I've seen it. I just I don't remember what she sounds like. Oh, that's better. I just farted. Haley, fart! It helps. Yeah, Mr. Rumsfield like runs after Queenie and threatens is all to kill the dog. So this is a. a Typical everyday occurrence, uh-huh, clearly. Bickering neighbors. Yes. And we learn through a conversation between Tom Hanks and his wife. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Princess Leia. Awesome. Uh, Carrie Fisher is basically explaining that he has the week off, and so she wants to go to the lake to relax, but he does not want to do this. Can, can I just ask you a question real quick? Okay. Do you find Tom Hanks attractive in this movie? 80s Tom Hanks is very attractive. He's very cute. I just wanted to ask that so I can get permission to say that Carrie Fisher is smoking in this movie. (laughs) She's got this whole suburban mom thing going for her. I would say she's much hotter as Leia. Those cute little sundresses that she wears that accent her figure. She looks great. (laughs) Cute little haircut. Anyway, continue. And then he looks out the window and he sees his friend Art, who has a gun, (laughs) and is going after these crows, which have mysteriously popped up ever since their their new neighbors moved in. Art, played by Rick Ducoman, who apparently did not get along very well with Tom Hanks through the making of this. Really? Maybe apocryphal. Tom Hanks apparently did not like him, but he was... A great guy on set, supposedly Tom Hanks. And it was very, like, cordial and jovial, and he bought everyone sunglasses on the set. (laughs) Aww. So his friend Art comes in, and he's your trope of a fat guy. He wants to eat everything, so much so that he eats dog food by accident. Yes. He's always, always hungry. Like, he empties out their syrup container... And puts it back in their fridge and then gets the new one out. Yeah. Like, oh, I would get so mad if I was Carrie Fisher's character. Okay, also, though, who puts their syrup in the fridge? Cold syrup would be harder to pour. <laughs> Never thought about it. <laughs> so while they're having breakfast together, they are talking about the neighbors and... Art is going on and on about how no one ever goes in, no one ever comes out. Uh, they've never seen their neighbors. These cloakpecks are strange. I've been watching that house ever since they moved in. No one goes in, no one comes out, no visitors, no deliveries. What do you think they're eating over there, right? But at night, Tom Hanks' son says, I've seen them digging in their backyard in the middle of the night. And while they're talking about this... One of their neighbors walks outside. Yeah. This, you guys should notice right away, is 
Malachi. <laughs> Malachi. Coming for you too, Malachi. <laughs> he wants you too, Malachi. Courtney Gaines. Yes, he's been in a lot of things, but we love to make fun of him for being Malachi. In Children in, of the Corn. Yes. Yeah. But he's that redheaded actor. He's been in a lot of things. Yes, you know him. And everybody in the neighborhood is staring at Malachi because none of them have ever seen him before. Are we going to call him Malachi for the entire episode? What do you want me? What's his name? Hans. I will call him Hans. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, as much and- as I would love to call him Malachi through the entire episode, apparently that's a point of contention. <laughs> yes. Uh, I also, I forgot to mention that we also see Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. Yes, who is a teenager or just out of high school, like in his early, early 20s. Why he owns a suburban home, I have no idea. Well, it was the 80s. I guess. (laughs) The late 80s, though, that is, you know, when it was a lot easier for him. You know, who knows how he got his money. They never explain. They never even touch on it. Do you know why he's painting his porch the whole movie? No. Uh, because they needed a reason for him to be outside, and they couldn't show the whole house. This movie was filmed entirely on the Universal backlot. Uh, the same street was used for Desperate Housewives, among other things. But that house, in particular, was used for the Munsters, and would be too easily identifiable as the Munsters' house. Hmm. So they just shot it from the porch. Ah. Yes, so he is always outside, apparently, trying to paint his porch. Paint his porch. Uh, he always hits on his neighbor's wife, the hot one. Yeah, Miss Rumsfield. Yeah. Um, and he just loves to watch his neighbors because they're He gets hilarious. a kick out of it. Yes. And if I lived on that street, I'd get a kick out of it, yeah, too. Yeah, a bunch of crazy old coots, squares. <laughs> Art and... Tom Hanks's character. Ray. Ray. So Art and Ray are goading each other to go up and ring the doorbell. Well, first to say hi to Hans. Here's your neighbor. Here's your opportunity. Say hi. And he's like, well, he's your neighbor, too. And they <laughs> argue over what makes the best neighbor. Well, you share a wall, a fence with him. So you're closer. I'm all the way across the street. You know, stuff like that. It's cute. But then he goes back inside, and now they're they're like, Tom Hanks is like, come on, we're ringing the doorbell, and he drags Art up there, and neither one of them is willing to touch that doorbell. And uh, Corey Feldman yells out, go for it, Mr. Peterson, yeah! Because like, <laughs> everyone is watching them. And everyone wants to know more about these new neighbors. Go for it, Mr. Peterson, yes! Ha <laughs> ha! And so they get up there, and when they go to knock, the nine on their address falls over and it becomes a triple six yeah so it was six six nine and then it becomes six 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 and then out come a bunch of bees yeah (laughs) random but yeah bees swarm after them rumsfield is out there with his uh hose and he's like run to me run to water (laughs) and then tom hanks like rolls on the ground like he's on fire it's very funny later that evening Ray, Tom Hanks, decides to go over to Art's house. And he does this often because he likes to smoke cigars and his wife doesn't really care for it. So he goes over there. And he's talking to Art and to Corey Feldman's character. 
And Art is telling the story of how this one guy many years ago went crazy and killed his family. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, you would have never guessed it. And he, he's he's implying that you can't trust anybody. It's the quiet ones you got to watch. This sounds like a very dangerous assumption. I'll bet you anything that while you're busy watching a quiet one, a noisy one will fucking kill you. Art tells them that the last house of the family that moved in next to Tom Hanks, their last house burned down under mysterious circumstances. And, like, they're talking and they're talking and then Tom Hanks gets scared, like, Art, like, scares him. And Corey Feldman laughs. And so he's like, Tom Hanks says, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch TV. <laughs> Uh, and so he goes in to watch Jeopardy with his wife, which is cute. It's because really cute. We watch Jeopardy. We watch, we watch Jeopardy on Netflix, which is awesome because it's just the Tournament of Champions. <laughs> this is all it is, just a really good ones. I would love to watch regular Jeopardy, but we don't have TV, so yep. we can't do that. While they're watching Jeopardy, he gets stopped by Art and Rumsfield because they have a plan. They're going to go and they're going to spy on their neighbors. And Tom Hanks' character is very apprehensive to do this. And whether it's based on his own fear or the fact that it sounds like they're crazy people, yes. it kind of treads the line for both. Yes. And he says, you know, what's next? To tap their phone lines? And Rumsfeld says, that can be arranged. <laughs> But while they're watching, they see these bright lights and they see lightning and then out comes a car. From the garage. With no headlights. Down to the street and then stops. <laughs> Hans gets out and puts some trash bags in the trash cans at the curb and tries shoving them down. This is apparently a little bit more ad-libbing him Attacking the thing was just his thing he tried, and it totally worked. It's very effective. He's just trying to smash this bag into this trash can. That coupled with Ray and his wife playing Jeopardy, that's also an idea of the actors. Little side note, this was filmed during a writer's strike, so they couldn't like write any stuff while they were filming, which is actually very common for a lot of movies. And Dana Olson, the writer to get around this writer strike. I don't know if you can call this good or bad, but Joe Dante hired Dana Olson uh, as a character. He I think he's one of the cops. Uh so he could be on set under the capacity of an actor and not a writer and so he can get around the writer strike. I have zero problem with that. <laughs> Maybe I'm a terrible person, but I don't see a problem with that. They think it's a body. Or something nefarious, something bad, something insidious, right? But in the morning, when they go to check their trash, there's nothing in there. Which makes Art believe that they know, like, the family knows that they were watching. And, but, he's, and he's, like, digging. They probably took whatever it was that was in the bag and put it in the backyard. Because that night... Ray sees them digging in their backyard in the rain. Yes. We should mention that the two guys who are the trash men that they have a very funny encounter with are... Dick Miller, who we know from many things, <laughs> including Joe Dante's Gremlins. He's the WWII guy. And 
Joe Dante's The Howling, he ran the Curio Bookshop, where the he, the dude gets his silver bullets, where Chris gets his silver bullets. We watched that one last week. And <laughs> Robert Picardo, who we mentioned last week, you might know as the bald-headed hologram doctor from Star Trek Voyager, but also Eddie the Mangler from also Joe Dante's The Howling. <laughs> yes, and they're very funny. And it's just them, they're digging apart the trash, and they're making the point that, oh, as soon as the trash men have it, it's, it becomes pro- public property, and they have a right to look through it. Uh, Dick Miller's character turns to Picardo's character and is like, will you help me out with this? And and he grabs, like, a bag and rips it open and pours it out, and Dick Miller's like, what are you doing? He's like, you told me to help. They have a right. <laughs> <laughs> the trash stays there the rest of the movie. Does it is it? there for the rest of the movie. I never noticed that. It never that. gets picked up because Dick Miller's like, I'm not picking this up. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, but we see Queenie out and about. Yes, all by herself. And they're like, that's not usual because Walter, is that's his name, right? Walter? Yes. Is obsessed with his dog. So they immediately go in to his house to investigate and I should mention that they move things and pick things up yeah. and touch things. If this was a real crime scene, your fingerprints would be all over the place and you'd be moving They're evidence. all anticipating he died of natural causes or slipped in the shower or something like that. They expect to find him dead. They do not. What they do find is his toupee. Yes, which makes them very nervous. And Art tells them that he had a dream that told him that they were Satanists. Yes. So Rumsfeld and Art are trying to convince Tom Hanks to investigate further into his neighbors. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to listen to my wife and not go through with this. And Art says, who listens to their wives? Yeah, they call him pussy whipped at one point. Yes. But ultimately he does recognize that this is there's a huge conflict in this movie uh i'll get to it later i'll get to it when we get to the end of the movie okay but throughout the movie he does like kind of concede that he is acting crazy and so are these other guys and there's a point where yes their curiosity is like justified that they're curious but Ultimately, it leads them to act insane, and he doesn't feel comfortable with that, and he recognizes that his wife is right. They should just calm down and make friends if they can, and if those people don't want to be friends with us, then what are we going to do? So that night, he has a bizarre dream. Do you want to describe it? Yes. So he wakes up, and a chainsaw comes through the wall at him. And his room is overgrown with plants, and it's it's really weird. In his dream, they are Satanists, and he's put on, like, a, a, a fire. A, a barbecue. Yeah. And, like, his neighbors are all there watching and laughing. Uh-huh. And then... Art tries to save him by pretending to be <laughs> the guy who used to live in that house. Yes. And then... The guy who, one of the guys who lives there next door says to him, mind your own business, as he goes to kill to Tom stab Hanks. stab him in the heart with a ritualistic knife. And Tom Hanks says, okay, and then wakes up, <laughs> and it's very funny. Mind your own business. Horror. It's funny. It's horror. So... 
Tom Hanks has decided he's going to mind his own business and stays indoors and is drinking a bunch of beer. And Art and Rumsfeld come out, come over and they really want him to come out. And Carrie Fisher says, no, my husband is staying inside today. And they're like, let him out. Come on, let him out. Yeah, like little really kids. Cute. And then when they walk away, they've got their heads down. It's very funny. <laughs> So Tom Hanks decides to take care of Walter's dog, Queenie. Yeah, this so, is going back a little bit when they're in his house. They they decide to take the dog with them. He writes a note that sounds like a ransom note. I have your dog ah! and shoves it in the mail slot. He also takes the toupee that he found, which was in his pocket, and shoves that back into the mail slot, too. So Art apparently also wrote a note, but this note was for his neighbors, and it basically says, we know what you did. Yes. And Tom Hanks flips out. He's like, they're going to think that I wrote it. Right. Because one of the people who live in the house saw him write a note and put it in the mail slot. Mm-hmm. Um, and Art is like, no, they won't. And then... Through the fence comes Art's the note, note. Yeah, crumpled up and thrown back over into Ray's yard. <laughs> so they're all freaking out. He's obviously freaking out about it. And Carrie Fisher decides enough is enough. Yes. This is going on too far. We are going to be good neighbors. We should have done this a long time ago. And we're going to knock on their door and introduce ourselves. And bring over some snacks. Yeah. And then uh, Art wants to come and, and Carrie says, you're not invited. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it is just the Petersons and the Rumsfields. Yes. So they come over and surprisingly Hans answers the door and lets them come. Well, doesn't really let them come in. Rumsfield just kind of walks in. <laughs> yes. And the others follow. Somebody says, that's a pretty girl uh, in the frame. And Hans goes, the picture came with the frame. Yes. <laughs> pretty girl. Friend of yours? No, it came with the frame. It came with the frame? Yes. <laughs> so they just have frames out. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Even though that sounds like an obvious giveaway that these people are not real, I have real friends yep. who have pictures on their walls <laughs> Yes. that still have the picture that came with the frame. <laughs> the idea is they organize their frames into very particular designs <laughs> and have yet to find pictures to go in those specific frames. So they've just left the pictures that came with the frames in there. Yep. <laughs> There's a small child that doesn't belong to them uh. up on their wall. <laughs> and the whole time Hans is just staring at Tom Hanks yes. very creepily. I just love how Mr. Rumsfeld is like looking around and touching everything. And he tears off some of their wallpaper and then tries to put it back. Also ad-libbed. <laughs> uh, and out comes Ruben. Klopek. The one that he had the dream about. Yes, who is played by Brother Theodore, uh, who has been in a lot of old B-movies and stuff like that. Uh, he's actually German, born in 1906. Uh, but Kelsey, you would know him as Rook from The Last Unicorn. Yes, he's a bad wizard. He's an evil wizard. <laughs> he comes out and he is... He's not having any of it. He is there. He recognizes that there are people in his home. He's not going to kick them out, but he wants to, but he's not going to treat them with hospitality. Yes. Meanwhile, Hans 
provides snacks in the form of sardines and pretzels. Yes. And Carrie Fisher takes a pretzel. Everybody else says no. And then when he gets to Tom Hanks, Carrie Fisher like says, like, yeah, you should have it. And so he takes a sardine and eats it, which is totally unfair because <laughs> Carrie Fisher didn't even take I think, one. I think she meant to take the pretzel, which he did, and the sardine, though. <laughs> Put it on top of the pretzel and ate it. And, oh, God. His face is hilarious when he eats it. Oh, God. Um, and, and then they start questioning him like, we hear Rumsfield. noises. Rumsfield starts questioning them, and but he does it in a way that might not seem suspicious. Just like, hey, we heard some noises, you know, whatever. And Ruben snaps at him, and he goes, whoa there, about a nine on the tension scale. <laughs> Klopek. What is that, Slavic? No. Oh, about a nine on the tension scale, Rube. I just love how Rumsfeld is so awesome. In this. Yes. I love him so much. Bruce Stern, you did a great job. Yes, he did. They're like, oh, you know, we we came over here all the time to see the naps. And Ruben says, how unfortunate for the naps. <laughs> but they do hear noises downstairs in the basement. And out comes... Henry Gibson as Dr. Werner Klopek. Henry Gibson, who was hired because he looks so unassuming, <laughs> even though he was a Nazi in the Blues Brothers just before this. <laughs> uh, Kelsey knows him more as Mr. Wormwood from Inner Space. Yes, he's a bad guy. Yeah, we both know him as um, uh, Thurston Howell in Magnolia. So, who is he in Magnolia? He's the other guy that shows up in the bar and hits on the gay bartender. Oh, that's braces. right. That's right. So I kind of have never liked him. He's always a bad guy. <laughs> he is a total dick to William H. Macy in that <laughs> movie. <laughs> I'm sick. Stay that way. I'm sick and I'm in love. You seem the sort of person who confuses the two. But yeah, I mean, he's always kind of this kind of meek looking, unassuming old man who they get to play bad guys. <laughs> and uh, he walks out and he shakes Tom Hanks's hand. It appears to be covered in blood. But he says, sorry about the paint. And we know he is an artist because we see his paintings everywhere, including one that Rumsfeld is really struggling to put the right way up. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you look at it, it's a surgery from the patient's point of view. Yeah, because he pl he's supposed to be a doctor. Yes. He screams, Jesus Christ, sorry! <laughs> Walter, the old man next door. We don't know where the hell he is. So he spills his tea because Rumsfeld is getting really aggressive with his questioning and talking about how the man uh, uh, at the end of the street is missing. And so he he stumbles over his tea and spills it in on his crotch and screams out like Kelsey said. And this eventually is what uh, gets him to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. He runs off holding his crotch. It's a great shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, this whole time, Art, who feels neglected and left out, <laughs> decides he's going to take it as an opportunity to jump over the fence. And he gets over the fence just fine because he needs to creep over it. But he falls and it's funny. But the dog notices. They have this great Dane that comes running through the house and then outside chases him over the fence or he trips the wire. All these alarms and lights go off. 
So they know they have this whole alarm system set up that's very sensitive. The dog, by the way, is named Landru, which is short. It is assumed for Henri Desiree Landru, who is a real-life serial killer from the early teens uh, in the 1900s who killed 11 people and went by the pseudonym Bluebeard. He would put ads in newspapers in, like, the Lonely Hearts section, and he would say, oh, you know, a 40-something widower who's well-to-do and has a, has a child looking for um, a widow who with an eye towards marriage or whatever, and then he would kill them. He uh, potentially strangled 11 different people and was eventually executed via guillotine in Versailles in 1922. And that's who they decided to name their dog after. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, After they leave, uh, Tom Hanks tells Rumsfeld and Art, you know, our wives are right. This is all BS. We're dumb. And he's like, I'm going to go have a conversation with the boys and try to explain that to them. And And Carrie Fisher says, I'm glad to see that you've come to your senses. Meanwhile, the boys are giving him shit for being whipped. Yeah. Well, they're wrong because they go into the room where they're going to talk, the man cave or whatever, and he takes out the toupee, Walter's toupee. That he had put back in Walter's house. He found it with some magazines addressed to Walter. Yes. So they have Walter's possessions in their house and his toupee, which the way they put this together in their heads is that, yes, they killed Walter. They did it quickly. They didn't realize they didn't have the toupee. And so they went back to go get it. Mm -hmm. They went there after Tom Hanks and crew had already gone. So they decide, we are going to investigate. The Klopex revealed during their visit that they're going to be gone all day the next day, and they are going to do something about this. Meanwhile, Corey Feldman calls up all of his friends and tells them to come over because it's going to be live. It really is. A lot of stuff is going to happen. Yes. And so he's going to have a party while this is going down. Hey, what's the haps, dude? You got to come down here today. It's going to be live. So here's what they all do. Art tries to take out the power to their house, which is really easy. You can see the line. That goes to each individual house. He ends up shutting down the power to the entire neighborhood. Yes. Um, he also gets electrocuted and falls off. <laughs> and Corey Feldman is kind of making fun of it. And uh, Rumsfeld says, shut up and paint your goddamn house. <laughs> <laughs> Rumsfeld is playing reconnaissance. He's going up on his house. He falls off of his roof at one point during all of this. Yes. Uh, But he gets to watch with the binoculars and the night vision and the walkie-talkie while Art and Ray go inside. Because for whatever reason, the the three men who live next door have left. Yeah, well, they were going to the school to uh, have a meeting or something like that. So they get in there and they go down into the basement and they find an enormous furnace. This is after they've dug up all over the backyard. And found nothing. In the softest soil they can find. And they yeah, they found nothing. So they go into the into the uh, basement and like I said, they find an enormous furnace. And they're like, what on earth could they need this furnace for? 
So they come to the conclusion that, of course, they killed Walter, they burned his body, and they buried his bones in the soft soil of the basement. So they start digging there. While this is happening, Corey Feldman and his party goers are having a lot of fun watching this all. And Corey Feldman yells up, yo, Rumsfield, which causes him, as Chris said, to fall. But what you didn't mention is that when he falls, he has his gun on him and he shoots a car window out. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Clopex come back and they see, obviously, that someone is in their home. And so they leave again to go and get the police. Yes. So then, like, they're getting really nervous because they're thinking, uh, Art and Tom Hanks are thinking, we're not going to find anything. And then Tom Hanks hits something. And they're like, oh, here it is. We found it. It's metal. So Art yeah. goes out to tell Rumsfield that they've got it, that they've found it. Yeah. And Rumsfield is trying to tell them the Klopex are coming back. Yeah. So then Art runs back in and tell is trying to tell Tom Hanks to get out. And Tom Hanks says, I've hit a gas line. Get out. <laughs> so Art runs out. And Tom Hanks doesn't make it out. And the house explodes. <laughs> And meanwhile, the party kids are having a great old time <laughs> eating their pizza out on the porch. Called the pizza dude. Yes. And then out walks Tom Hanks, somehow alive. Yes. Completely singed. Ray attacks Art. Basically, you know, like, I can't believe I let you talk me into this. We're insane. We're going to jail. We broke into these people's home. We blew up their house, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Lies down on a gurney. Nobody moves him, so he gets up and throws the gurney into the back of an ambulance and flops down on it. <laughs> yes. Which was another uh, Tom Hanks original. Ah. So while he's in there, in comes the doctor, which you might think is okay because he's a doctor, but also, you know, he's probably angry that they exploded his house, right? Yes. So you're thinking it's okay. It's normal. But then Klopek says, do you take me for a fool? Do you think I'm an idiot? He's basically saying what you just said to Art back there was a show. And he says, I know what you found in my basement. I know that you found the bones of the original owners of the house in my furnace. Do I look like an idiot, Mr. Peterson? No. Do you take me for an imbecile? No. You may have fooled the others, Mr. Peterson, but you don't fool me. Uh, if I fool the others? But you don't fool me. I don't? No, you don't. Which Tom Hanks d did he not find. He never looked in the furnace. Yes, so he never looked in there. Hans ends up driving the... Ambulance. Ambulance away. But Tom Hanks is fast enough to grab Hans and gets him to uh, run into a tree. So then he runs out and tries well, to... Well, no, they, the two of them on the back of this gurney come rolling out the back of the yes. ambulance. Yes. Fighting against each other. Yes, because... Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! <laughs> Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! I, Ray Peterson, am placing you under citizen's arrest. Klopek is trying to put a needle into him yeah. to kill him. And they, they end up hitting Klopek's car and the trunk pops open and everything. And he, Tom Hanks is shouting citizen's arrest and everyone's like, what are you doing? Have you gone crazy again? You snapped again. And Art's like, uh, 
uh, uh. And, and so the cops look into the trunk, the open trunk of the Klopex car and find a pile of bones. Yes. We did not mention earlier, Kelsey, that they, the dog found a femur. <laughs> oh, that's right. We did forget that. The, uh, they did find what they thought was a, femur, a human bone. Which yeah. was true. Yeah. Um, but they got nervous that night when, or that day when they came to visit and they dug up all the bodies. That's why all the soil was all soft and put all the bones uh, from the furnace and everything in the back of the car. Yeah. So they got it out of there, but they couldn't leave well enough alone. Nope. They've got Klopek, but Hans is running away and Rumsfeld sees him and he goes, hey, Pinocchio, where are you going? <laughs> and he run, he like slides into his legs like he slide tackles him. It's totally awesome. It's a it, great scene. It's great. Then uh, Art is being uh, interviewed by the news people and he's like, I think what you've, we've all learned here is that you don't mess with the suburbanites because they can handle their shit, yeah. basically. Somebody says, Art, your wife's home and your house is on fire. <laughs> So he has to run and take care of that. Because <laughs> that's the house that the ambulance crashed into and it caught fire. Yes. And one of the kids from the party says, man, that Ricky sure knows how to throw a party. <laughs> and then Tom Hanks sees Corey Feldman before he goes inside and he says, hey, I want you to keep an eye on our street for me. Yeah, we're going to go away for a while. <laughs> I need you to keep an eye on the street. And he goes, you betcha, Mr. Peterson. God, I love this street. Yeah. God, I love this street. That's the end of the movie. Yes. Lightning round, Kelsey. I, I covered everything. Did you? That's I have a few so things. <laughs> there is a great line that I absolutely love because it's delivery by Bruce Stern is perfect. When Art is climbing up on the power line and he says, I don't know that he knows what he's doing to Ray. And Ray says, well, why didn't you go up there? Bruce Stern says, it's very high. <laughs> I don't know that he knows what he's doing. Why didn't you go up there? Very high. <laughs> it's just such a perfect delivery. Before he has his nightmare, Ray is up all night watching horror movies. That's right, yeah. And he flips through Race with the Devil, The Exorcist, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. <laughs> Not the first one, the second one, but that's why he sees the chainsaw and the Satanists and all of that. So, yeah, it's never really made clear what they are. But if you take into account the crows being there, the gust of wind, the fact that they can enter their dreams. They're like universal monster types. I would be led to believe that they are, in fact, Satanists. No, I think he's just a like a uh, an unscrupulous... You know, one of those horror style doctors. But what I'm saying is, is that if Dr. you take Mangala. into account all of the crows coming, yeah. the gust of wind when you get on there, the bees coming out, it makes you think that they're probably Satanists. Uh, but they the never demon dog, Great Dane. Yeah. And when they're and when they're burying stuff or digging in the backyard, they wear these cloaks. Yeah. So like I think the idea is that they're supposed to be Satanists, but it's not ever actually made clear. When Rumsfeld is on screen and being all militaristic, you might hear a little jingle that sounds really familiar. Dun, 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 dun. That is from the Patton theme composed by Jerry Goldsmith because Jerry Goldsmith did the music for this movie. Nice. You may know Jerry Goldsmith from tons of things. 
He did L.A. Confidential. He did Star Trek. He did The Secret of Nim. He did Poltergeist. He did The Omen. He did a couple songs from the Alien franchise. He's responsible for the Universal theme and the Oscars fanfare, which the Oscar nominations just went out, and I had a few things to say on our Twitter feed about that. <laughs> this movie also plays with the trope of the boy who cried wolf, but is right. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the actual name of this trope is, where nobody believes the one person who says this this crazy thing is happening, uh, and it takes forever for them to be vindicated. Chicken and little syndrome. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Wait, but does this guy actually fall in that story? I don't know. No. <laughs> oh well, then never mind. <laughs> but he is ultimately uh, vindicated in this, and I have a problem with that. I also really like it. Like, viscerally, I really like that he is vindicated. If it had ended up that it was all just a misunderstanding and our main character goes to prison for being prey to his paranoia, like, it would have been really frustrating. Yeah. But it would have been really illuminating. And this is where I want to talk about the subgenre of horror of suburban horror. So suburban horror is most definitely a thing. There's a lot of suburban horror. Uh, I mean – Horror takes place in a lot of places. It takes place in the woods. It takes place in, um, well, if you watch, there's this great video on horror on what used to be cracked. Uh, there's a great article and a video which specifically calls out the burbs, by the way. American scary stories have to happen on the outsides of civilization. The woods, the farms, the burbs. And it talks about how horror is a reflection of different fears and anxieties and guilt and stuff yes, like that. Yes, and that I understand. Yes, and it explains why in, I took an entire class about yeah. the history of America through film. It explains why a lot of the horror tales from London take place in the city because they were going through the Industrial Revolution and a lot of life took place in the city. That's where they sort of lost their humanity. Mm -hmm. And in America, horror takes place on the fringes of society. You don't get a lot of horror that takes place in populated cities. Oh, Leprechaun in the Hood. Yeah, exactly. You try to set an American horror story in an urban environment and it ends up being a joke. You do that same thing in England and you end up with Attack the Block. British people prefer to tell their scary stories around garbage. Garbage can fires, who cares? It's showing us what we're actually afraid of, Soren. Ourselves. Our greatest fear is losing our humanity. That comes from our Puritanism. Yeah. You know, the witch, right? It takes place our in the fear forest. Of the unknown. Yeah. Our fear of godless places. Yeah, our our guilt about what we did uh to the frontier. And coupled with that. Our fear of, you know, the unclean, the crime-ridden urban areas. And so there was this, like, white flight to the suburbs. And that's on the outside of society, and it's a place where you can be really isolated, and there's not a lot of people to see if you're getting attacked or anything like that. So white people leave the city because they're scared of the city, and so they leave out to the suburbs, and they're scared of that, too. Um, It is like archetypically Western and specifically American. It ties in also in, especially in the case of this, our fear of what we're giving up for like a secure and boring life. So we create these like fantasies in our, in our heads. We have to place our fear there instead. Um, There's also this like excitement and thrill of what would happen if your life was a little bit less secure And there really was something sinister and evil going on in your hometown. 
the weird thing is, is that this movie is not a deconstruction of suburban fears. And that's the problem. It's a vindication of them. At the same time, it points the finger at the normal people in town and it goes, ha, look at you. You're weird too. But it undermines that message by making the characters who don't conform to the, like the HOA standards of conformity in the suburbs legitimately suspect. They really are evil. They really are murderers. And all of your suspicions about the weird outsiders, the others, are vindicated. Which is, it's a story turn I appreciate, but when it's held up to the lens of suburban horror critique, it falls kind of on the wrong side of that, in my opinion. Because you're justifying those suspicions, which are really harmful. It's also like the witch. The witch hunts were really harmful to women, society in general, but specifically women. And we decided with movies like this, oh, but what if witches really exist? And now we're vindicating the suspicions that led to the deaths of multiple women just for being women? Like, should we really be falling on that side of the conversation? And that's what we're doing here again is the others, the weird people that show up and don't conform to white suburban society are the ones that we are justifiably suspicious of so does rear window and disturbia unfortunately and those are well at least rear window is really good i haven't actually seen disturbia you've never seen disturbia i haven't don't worry it's on the list guys i really enjoy it (laughs) now i have a lot to say about suburban horror and i'm not going to get into it all here obviously this movie isn't necessarily the place for it because of what i was just talking about but movies like the stepford wives Fright Night, Poltergeist, they take that opposite position in suburban horror where that suburban conformity is the thing to be suspicious of in those movies. And so I don't know that Fright Night falls on that side. He does come in, but he is the epitome of normal, handsome white dude who everyone really likes because he fits in so well. And that's why he can hide. Meanwhile, these people can't hide because they're too weird in in the burbs. So while on the one hand, I really, really like that Tom Hanks is vindicated and it's a fun, action-packed ending. And we get that citizen's arrest scene, which is <laughs> awesome. And Tom Hanks being very confused when Klopek is explaining, you think I'm an idiot? What? No, what? <laughs> it's an awesome ending, but it also really kind of undermines what could be a great commentary on suburban fear, which is a lot of what horror movies are for. Instead, it justifies those fears instead of putting a really good lens on them. And it tries to straddle the line between calling everyone who does have those suspicions crazy and then justifying them in the end. It's a little unclear there, but I still really love this movie. I really, really do. That said, what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? 76. 52%. Ooh. The Burbs doesn't completely waste its engaging premise, its likable leading man, and Joe Dante's unique brand of weirdness, but it's still a mixed-up genre exercise that isn't quite as dark or as funny as it could have been. I disagree. I think it's hilarious. It is hilarious, and I think it is fairly dark. A little dark. But if it went too dark, it would take away, I think, from the humor. And it is a comedy. It's a horror comedy, in my opinion. It got a Metacritic of 44 and a cinema score of a C. No. 
I'm not even going to ask you. It's underrated. Yes, it's underrated. What would you give it? I will give it an 82. Nice. Nice. Uh, pretty close to what I was going to give it, which was an 85. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love this movie. I think this movie is probably going to end up on our list at the end with the uh, critical difference because it's pretty high. Not as high as Ghost Keeper was, but still pretty high. <laughs> I, I mean, it falls prey to the 80s uh, slapstick stuff, which I'm not an yeah. enormous fan of. So it does sometimes have that, and that kind of is a turnoff to me. And I don't think it's scary at all, so I'm not going to give it like a really high score. I mean, it is just a silly comedy, but I really enjoy myself when I watch it, so 82. Good. Uh, also, a little bit of added fun from uh, the IMDb parental guide they have. This is what they specifically list as the profanity in the film there are seven goddams, a few bastards a few dams a few hells some is profanity some is the religious context and a few shits and bullshits <laughs> i love how there's a few of these other things and specifically seven goddams. <laughs> all right that is 1989's the burbs before we move on to our next film kelsey Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Show me what you got. Really easy question. In 1980s Friday the 13th, what character is revealed to be the killer? Pamela Voorhees. That is correct. All right, Kelsey. In the Amityville Horror, 1979, which character becomes obsessed with cutting firewood? Do I have to know his name? Yes. The dad. I... Oh, I don't remember. It's a very boring name, I think. Uh, I don't know. What is it? Can you name the actor that isn't Deadpool? <laughs> I can't even think of his name. I know him as the dad of the guy from the Goonies. <laughs> Both of which are famous actors on their own right. And yes. no, I cannot think of what his He name plays is. Thanos. He also plays Cable in Deadpool. <laughs> his name is Josh. Brolin! That's right. And so what's his dad's name? Uh, I don't know. James. James Brolin. James Brolin. The character's name is George Lutz. Oh, the Lutzes. That's right. Yep. Uh-huh. I was never going to get that. No. But now that you say it, it's like, I'll give you. I'll give you credit for that, though. You knew who it was. Yes, I knew. It was I the knew. dad and the, yeah. Uh -huh. All right, Kelsey. Yep. Our next movie is 2006's Slither, mm -hmm. written and directed by James Gunn, starring Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker. What is it about? An alien species comes down on a meteor into a uh, suburban... I'd call it kind of rural. Into a rural town. Yeah, a small town, rural, small suburban town. mix, yeah. And the creature wants to take over the world. So how does this small town deal with this encroaching terror? We'll also, maybe on the wrong side of the statement to our anxieties that we could... <laughs> because we're afraid of aliens? 
the the encro- the unknown. It's the encroaching flood of people who are going to take over our society in our nice rural towns. I and, think that's a big reach. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. And they're aliens. I, I know that's not what it's saying. That's I'm not just at saying all what it's trying to say. If you're trying to analyze a film with the anxiety, society's anxieties in quotes. Not everything has lens. to be social commentary. No, I'm not saying it is. I'm saying you can analyze something in many different lenses, whether they're intended or not. I totally see what you're saying for the burbs. I do. I, yeah. I get the problem there that we shouldn't be suspicious of people just because they seem different than yeah. us. I do understand that. This is an alien invasion movie. Totally. <laughs> I'm just saying if you analyzed it with this lens, that's what you would come up with. I'm not saying it's intended. Or, you know, like, oh, it's an accidental Freudian slip of a movie. I don't think that that's the case. Because James Gunn, man, he loves his hicks, but he also really hates them too. Yeah. So, like, it it does it does a dual commentary just like the Burbs does. Well, I love that we have directors that keep using the same actors. Yes. Joe Dante uses that one dude all the Dick time. Dick Miller. And then here we have James Gunn using Michael Rooker Michael again. Rooker, yeah. And Nathan Fillion, who is in both Guardians of the Galaxy. He plays, he plays the big alien in the prison scene that Groot then sticks his fingers up his nose. That's Nathan Fillion's voice. Oh, I was going to say, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I don't remember him being in that movie. Okay. Yeah, but Michael Rooker, it's Mary Poppins, y'all. Uh, Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> Hashtag rehire James Gunn. <laughs> Should people watch this movie, Kelsey? Surprisingly, yes. Yes. I thought it was going to be garbage. It is fun. It is funny. It's funny. It uses gross-out humor just like a trauma alumnus would. <laughs> If you saw society and you didn't like what happened at the yeah, there's end, a lot of that. In this movie. <laughs> there's a lot of over the top, and it knows it's over the top. Yes. It's not trying to be serious. It is trying to be gross. Which that's a good question. Do you think that society intended for you to take that scene seriously? Uh, I think it's supposed to be a little bit humorous but i don't think he, i don't think it's supposed to be funny like this is supposed to be funny okay. like when they go into the barn and find what they find yes like yeah. that's obviously intentionally supposed to be ridiculous okay whereas in society i think it's supposed to be gross and disgusting and you're supposed to be put off by it and that's intentional so this is just supposed to be funny in your eyes well it's supposed to be gross too but it's it's trying to make you laugh with its grossness okay whereas i don't think society was i think society was trying to make you go whoa oh (laughs) and then it had things like butthead (laughs) (laughs) which would then make you laugh All right, so you can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 2006's Slither. When you marry someone, you promise to love them forever. No matter how much, they might change. Baby, what happened to your face? It's just a bee sting. From Universal Pictures. A film so shocking. Uh, we got a real problem here. So disgusting. Don't let him in your mouth! No! It will change the face ah! of horror. Marriage 
is a sacred bond, for better or worse. Much worse. Something's wrong with me. Slither. Kelsey. Yes. Before we get into this movie, can I just say that it is an absolute shame that even though it had the Universal Studios production logo, it was distributed by Universal in a lot of areas, and it began with a meteor crashing into the Earth, but it didn't take advantage of the Universal logo being the planet Earth. That is a bummer. Come on. <laughs> that is a missed opportunity. Especially after what we saw in the Burbs and basically any other Universal movie. <laughs> I agree. But it didn't bother me. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you get us started on the plot of Slither? We open on a meteor that is headed towards Earth and it lands in a town called Wheelsy. And it lands behind cops. Uh, one of which is Nathan Fillion, who is asleep on the job. Yeah. And another one who is so bored that he uses his speed gun to follow a bird. And he sees that it's at 27 miles an hour. And he says that he's very surprised by this. And Nathan Fillion is just like, shut the fuck up, man. Yeah. Like, and then we are introduced to the town of Wheelsy. And it is a piece of shit town. Everything is run down. Everything, everybody's poor and you know it's not a good place but we see elizabeth banks yay elizabeth banks yes and she is this gorgeous teacher and she is giving this speech about how you know we're so amazed with ourselves but meanwhile there's creatures like cockroaches that can survive a nuclear holocaust. Uh-huh. So who's more successful, cockroaches or us? Yeah. She explains, I, th I think, a pretty important fact about survival of the fittest. Fittest doesn't mean best or strongest. It means the, the most equipped to survive. And that's where she gets into the, the cockroaches. Are they more fit than humans? Question mark? And believe it or not, for this silly comedy, this uh, will have to do with the rest of the plot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they are talking about survival of the fittest. Who will survive, the humans or the alien? Yeah. Then we get to see it's after school, and we see Nathan Fillion again. Uh, 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 but before this, we see James Gunn. He's the other teacher that Starla, who is... Elizabeth Banks is talking to outside. We see him just for this one scene, and then that's it. A lot of folks build houses on unsafe ground. Mm -hmm. The erosion on Cambodia is some of the worst my friends mm -hmm. wanted to buy a house hey. there, but... Come on. Oh. Hey, Grant. Okay. Later, Hank. Bye-bye, James Gunn. Yes, and her husband, Michael Rooker, does not like him talking to his wife. Michael Rooker's name in this movie is Grant Grant. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> He's also super rich. And which makes it odd that she even has a job. Right. Well, because she does it because she wants to. And you know what? As weird as it is that old Michael Rooker is dating this young Elizabeth Banks, and it seems like for a while now. Well, they're married. Sorry. Yes. Married. But for a while now is what I mean. Like 
when she was super young, I would assume, and he was a lot older. And that is exactly what, what Nathan Fillion then tells us. But he's not like an awful guy. No. For what little we see of him. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a moment when he's tempted to be horrible and he doesn't take it, but we'll get there. Yeah. He's not exactly a great guy. No, 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 no. But he's not like this horrible human being. You feel kind of bad for him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Fillion basically tells us that, yeah, she was young, poor, white trash but she was beautiful, and so Michael Rooker, this really rich guy, married her up. Cut to that night, and he, uh, Michael Rooker wants to have sex, and she is not in the mood. He's a little bit aggressive here. Yes, he is. But he does go, okay, that's fine, but I'm going to go have a drink. And he goes to the bar. Yeah, he, sa- he says, when the hell are you in the mood? Yeah. Which, I can understand him being frustrated, but like... Shitty way to act. Yep. So he goes to a bar where this lady is singing this awful song on karaoke. Uh, I think it's Crying Game? Yes, it is. It's the Crying Game. (laughs) Okay. And he meets this girl, this floozy, who knows that he's married, but she hits on him real hard. Yeah, Brenda, who has had a huge crush on him, probably the same way that Starla did. And he's, like, known her since she was little. And he's like, wait a minute. When you knew me, you were like... You couldn't have been more than 10 or 11. Hell, I was game. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, really gross. Shit, come on now. You couldn't have been more than 10 or 11. Hell, I was game. (laughs) And he is wasted. And so he, like... He entertains this idea of being with this other woman, and they go out to the woods together, and they're, like, fooling around. But as soon as she starts kissing him, he's like, whoa, 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 no, I can't do this. I can't do that to Starla. And he starts to leave, and she's like, what the fuck? (sighs) That's when he sees what appears to be a giant rock that's been cracked open. That's the meteorite. Yep. It's opened up and it looks like something vaginal and it has this little thing that starts sticking out of it. And he's like, oh, what's that? And then and it sticks into him through his chest. Yes. Which is odd because the others go through the mouths. The slugs do. This is not a slug. Ah, okay. He follows this long trail out to it. Yeah. It's just like, why would you want to? It seems weird. If it was just a normal meteor, that'd be dope as fuck. And then he just walks away. Yeah. As if nothing happened. And Brenda's like, what? What? Huh? And yeah, he's just he's just going away. Now, this comes up in conversations with Starla. She's like, whoa, what happened to you? And he says uh, it was a bee sting. Uh, bug bite. Bug bite, yeah. It's an allergic reaction or whatever. Oh, my God, baby. What happened to your face? It's just a bee sting. I'll be all right. I have a little reaction, that's all. It's like, you need to go to the doctor. And he says, I've already been to the doctor. He gave me something for it. And she's like, well, it ain't working. And through this process, we get to see that he is still Grant. But he's also 
this alien. He is moved to eat tons of raw meat. Yes. He gets a voracious sexual appetite, and he and Starla do end up having sex during this period. He makes a bed of leaves in the basement. Yeah, and that's where he sleeps at night, not with her. But yeah, so she does have sex with him. You got to understand that this is, it's it's almost like Grant and the alien have merged into a new being where he still has the memories and feelings of Grant, but the motivations of the alien. So that's why he's lying to his wife, but still like loves her. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing, but this is the new Grant for the rest of the film. <laughs> he also eats their dog. Poor thing. Yeah. So they're going to go to this deer cheer thing, but Rooker leaves because he wants to, like Chris said, have sex with her as an alien. Yes. And Grant, the Grant part of him, doesn't want to do this to Starla. They got through it once without anything bad happening. He knows he has this feeling that this is going to be bad. So he can't do it to Starla. So instead, he tracks down Brenda. Mm hmm. And they have sex, kind of. <laughs> when they're doing it, he takes off his shirt, and then the tentacles come out, and they- They go into her stomach. Yeah, uh-huh. And he is impregnating her, and we yes. will see what that entails a little bit later. <laughs> yes. But so, Starla goes to the deer cheer. Yeah. And there, she sees uh, Nathan Fillion, and it's pretty clear that Nathan Fillion has an enormous crush on her. Always has. And the other cops say so. They know it. And I think she knows, too. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. And the way that they do the impregnating scene, they mm -hmm. mix it with the deer cheer. Yeah. Of, like, a countdown to, to people, like, eating. Yeah. So, it what it is, it, the deer cheer is a celebration marking the opening of deer hunting season. And so the whole town, this is all in South Carolina, uh, gets together at this one bar. They have the deer cheer and they count down to when the season starts. And so while they're doing this countdown, that's when the impregnation scene happens with Grant and Brenda. So Grant doesn't get any better and we don't see what happens to Brenda. And Starless starts to get really concerned. So... She goes to the doctor and she tells the doctor, listen, whatever you gave him, it is not working. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you can do? And he's like, Starla, I don't understand. I haven't seen your husband in six months or whatever it is. And that's when she's like, uh-oh, something is wrong. <laughs> she ends up contacting chief party, Nathan Fillion. And so now he knows and he gets curious, but he tries to like, you know, calm her down. And, you know, oh, I'm sure it's fine. It's all good. And we see him buying tons and Grant. We see Grant buying tons and tons and tons of raw meat. Yes. And taking it to this barn. Yes. Where he feeds it to Brenda. Yes. Ultimately, the conflict which starts the like the back half of the movie is that Starla breaks into the basement, which he's been keeping locked suspiciously, and he finds out. And she finds out there's something really weird going on, and he ends up attacking her. And she freaks out. And that's what happens. She calls the police chief. He shows up, and Grant's not there. After he leaves, that's when Grant shows up. 
and she tries to call him again and he ends up breaking in the door with his other guys and they see him and he like bursts out these tentacles <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck? What the fuck was that? And he ends up escaping. Yes. And so they end up having this casual conversation back at the police station with the mayor who gave the big speech at the at the deer cheer. And he's trying to be like, you guys are nuts. And they're all like, you didn't see him, mayor. Like... Yeah, he looked like a squid. In many places you can hide, it looks like a damn squid. Sea world, maybe. See, she heard you say squid. She's gonna go out and create a goddamn hysteria. Shelby, you gonna create hysteria? Not today, Bill. My question is, why didn't they fire at him? They just stood there and watched him as he changed and then turned and well, ran away. Well, it didn't like he. It, it's not like he took forever to change. It just kind of happened, and they're and they're like, holy shit! <laughs> and he like swings at him too. So you know. I don't know that I that my instinct would have been that way either. So, but he ends up getting away, and they try to chase after, but he doesn't. Anyway, they're back at the at the police station, and they try to rally a group together to go on a hunt, just and, like they would with deer, but for Grant. And they want to bring him in alive because they want to find Brenda because Brenda. Brenda's missing. Mm-hmm. So they end up tracking him down, and he looks worse because he's been they've been seeing attacks and like uh dogs and cows and stuff have been getting killed at the edges of town and so they're staking out another farm area that hasn't been hit yet that's at the edge of town so they they hope they don't hope he attacks but they hope if he's gonna attack he's gonna attack there and he does and he looks like this creeping slug monstrosity that's for you folks in southern california who listened to k-rock back in the day And he looks all fucked up and he attacks them. And it's funny because the mayor says, squid, he looks like a something, like much crazier. And the the cop says, it got worse. (laughs) (laughs) And he ends up trying to run away. And and one of the cops says, it looks like something that fell off my dick in the war. It looks like something that fell off my dick during the war. So they follow him back and they are, they are able to trace him, but they don't see him back to this barn where he's been keeping Brenda. And they go inside and they see the state that Brenda is in. Brenda is as big as the barn. She's giant and inflated and there is writhing underneath her skin. And she's talking about how hungry she is and it's kind of gross not as gross as when her skin splits and all of these little slug leech things come bursting out. And thank God it was bad CG because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Yeah, it's 2006 CG. It is gross, but not totally convincing. (laughs) (laughs) And so all these guys are getting attacked uh, by these slugs and like they jump into their mouth and they kill them that way. Or at least... They pass out. And Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, Greg Henry, who plays Mayor McCready. Uh, McCready, that's a reference to the thing, by the way. And the female cop, is it Kylie or Margaret? I can't remember which one she is. Um, but a few of them are totally fine. And, they, and so after these slugs run away, because they've eaten all they could eat or infested all they could infest, they start carrying the bodies out. And this is when the bodies wake up again and start attacking. And they start talking to Starla as if he's 
Grant. Yeah. They're they're regurgitating memories. Yeah. So, well, what we find out is that since these are his children, they're like linked to him. Mm-hmm. Kind of psychically. Mind. Yeah. There's like this hive mind. And so any of these infested people can talk as if they are Grant. But we still don't know where Grant's gone at this point. But they also can talk as if they're the other person, too. Yes. Yeah. So there's all these puppets around. <laughs> But all of these slugs have gone off to who knows where until we find out where, which is town. And they start to infect other people and including this family and this young girl is the only one who survives of her whole entire family. Yeah, this is Kylie played by Tanya Solner. So I think Margaret is the other cop played by Jennifer Copping. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, Kylie's the only one who survives and she's trying to get away Nathan Fillion shows up and he saves her. And because one came after her and got into her mouth, she now knows all the secrets. Yeah. So she's the one who's in the bathtub that's on all the covers. Yeah. And that's where she gets attacked. And it goes into her mouth and starts to attach to her. But she's able to hold it, hold on to it and prevent it from doing so until she digs her nails into it. It lets go of her and she throws it across the room and, and smashes it. And... The others get the rest of her family. Yeah. But now she's been connected to this hive mind and she knows everything uh, it knows. And she sees its past of landing on a planet, taking over the entire planet and moving on to the next one. So she knows what it is that they're trying to do. Um, So now we have Starla, Party, McCready, and Kylie. So these four are now relatively uh, fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, they've been attacked, but they're not I- infected. So they, they know that they need to kill Grant to stop all this because that's what Kylie tells them. And they get attacked by all these, we'll, we'll call them zombie puppet things, whatever you want to call them. And this is where they catch Starla and McCready. And McCready ends up getting infected and he's kept in the basement of Grant's home where some other infected people are and he's fed raw meat and it's really disgusting. Yeah. He tries to fight against it. It's nasty. Yeah. He's strong-willed and he tries to fight against this, but that urge just takes him over. And they go back to Grant. Bill and Kylie, who are the only two left now, go back to Grant. They go back to Starla and Grant's house to... Find Starla and McCready if either of them are still alive. But because we know this alien consciousness has merged with Grant's consciousness, we know that this new entity is in love with Starla. (laughs) Because Grant was legitimately in love with Starla. He loved her to death. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't kill her. It would try to keep her, Mm -hmm. even though she doesn't want to be kept. But we find out that it's turned into this giant society-esque yeah. bigger monstrosity. And we see the these zombie puppets come walking in, stripping down naked and flopping down on the on the pile to get absorbed in. Straight out of society. Straight out of society, yes. Except they're mindless husks and not so much willing participants. 
So shit is going bad, and this Grant entity is trying to convince Starla, like, you know, stay, stay, and she's like, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But he gets mad, and uh, I think she, like, tries to kill him, right? Well, she tries to calm him down, because he's freaking out, and she calls him Grant for the first time in a long time. I know you don't want to hurt me, Grant. You like being called Grant, don't you? I can do that. I can call you that. Because you're lonely, right? You've been alone so long, I can't even imagine, I bet. You don't have to be alone anymore. She recognizes that Grant is in there, and she's like, yes, we can be together. And when she gets close to him, she has this, like, pointed hairbrush uh, where the end of the handle is pointed. She takes it out and she stabs him. And he just knocks her across the room with one of his many tentacles. Mm-hmm. And he's like, bitch, do you know how long I've existed? <laughs> I will exist till I am everywhere, till I am all that is. Yes. You podocore! Uh. I've been around a billion years! You think you can fuck with me? This is when Party shows up. He makes it there. And McCready runs into him. And he's still kind of himself. And he asks Party to kill him. Party hesitates for a second and then shoots him in the head. Yeah. It's like, all right. You know, I don't think he liked McCready very much in the first place, (laughs) but he was willing to give him that piece that that McCready really wanted. He didn't want to become part of this. Neither would I. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So they set up earlier on in the movie that they got a they they found a grenade on some criminal or something like that. And they have it in the police station. And so he has it with him and he threatens to blow up everything, right? So he pulls a pin and he throws it and Grant just knocks it away. It lands in the pool and explodes and just kind of this, (laughs) you know, grenades don't operate the way you think they do (laughs) and totally believable explosion underwater. It's not everywhere. It's just a geyser kind of shoots up. It's, it's pretty funny. And then it uses its impregnating tentacle things to stab party. And he gets stuck with just one of the tentacles. (laughs) And that is important. It's very important. He's able to uh, grab the other one, but he's being dragged around and knocked around. And basically we know if he gets stabbed by the two, he'll get converted. We don't know exactly in what form. That's the way that Brenda was impregnated. Uh, It's also the way that Grant got infected in the first place. So it's not like the slugs in the mouth. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad. He's getting knocked around and he ends up, like plugging this tentacle mouth thing into the end of a propane tank, which they have out there for barbecues. (laughs) And he opens it up and Starla takes his gun, which got knocked free and shoots him because he's getting filled up with all this propane. (laughs) And she shoots him and he explodes. Uh, Not necessarily in the way that propane filling something would explode, but you know, (laughs) whatever. And then all the zombies and stuff just fall to the floor. Yes. Dead. 
So now we have three survivors. We have Party, we have Starla, and we have Kylie. Mm-hmm. And and Kylie says, "You need to, you need both of them in you to get all wormy." Yes. <laughs> you need both of them things in you to get all wormy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She explains why Bill's going to (laughs) survive if they can find a hospital, because he's pretty fucked up. Yes. And then credits. At the end of the credits, we see the cat is, like, licking up all of the grossness that's in Grant's house. And then it gets attacked, right, as it cuts to black, and we hear it, you know, you're like, oh, kitty. So this thing isn't fully... Dead. No. And now the cat's infected. Yeah. And it can still come back. There can be a slither too. Oh God. <laughs> All right, Kelsey. That was the movie. Do you have anything for lightning round? I was also very surprised when you realize that Starla loves him too. Starla loves Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thing, is you that expect there to be something there, but no, she loves Grant and Grant loves her. It's really weird. They had a genuine relationship. Mm-hmm. And there was no like, oh, she's a he's a sugar daddy and she's the hot young thing that he's paying for, whatever. Exactly. She was totally her own person and independent and smart. That was very surprising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was nice. Yeah, it brought an interesting dynamic to the film. It really did, yeah. Additional cameos. Jenna Fisher is in this movie. She plays Pam from The Office. Pam, I was so excited when I saw her. She is the dispatcher, and she ends up getting infected back at the police station. And the reason she's in this movie is because she is married to James Gunn. Wow, that's the reason she's in it, Chris? (laughs) No, legitimately, she wasn't originally cast. There was somebody else cast, and... Uh, when that person couldn't end up doing it, he's like, hey, do you want to do it? She's Uh, like, hell yes, I do. uh, (laughs) Aw, Pam. Yeah, uh, she's fine. She just wanted to, she she wanted to be a zombie. Like, that was her thing. She wanted to play one of the zombies. (laughs) And so she got to in this. (laughs) When Michael Rooker is infected, Grant, we see like this x-ray effect. Like, if you ever played like the Sniper Elite games or one of the later Mortal Kombat games when it goes into slow-mo and you see like, x-ray bones and you see them breaking in slow-mo like it's kind of like that it's pretty neat it's kind of new but it's also shot like really classically where he's like laying on the ground and it like superimposes over the top of him and then it goes away like it would have been done in an old-timey movie it it, I, it was very charming and it was just a small little moment and you never see it again <laughs> they didn't like let it play out There are names of the ranches where Grant attacks on the edge of town. Some of them sounded interesting, and I didn't know what they were references to, like Fitzgibbon and Strutmeyer. But there's also the Castavets. Yes. That was one of the things I was going to From Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. And the Raglans, Raglan, which sounds like Sean Gunn's character in Guardians of the Galaxy, Kraglan. Ah. I don't know if there's actually a relationship there, but just something I noticed. (laughs) When Chief Party sees the society monster, he says, well, now that is some fucked up shit. (laughs) Well, now that is some fucked up shit. There's a moment when they're rounding up people to go hunting. Uh, 
and we see Kylie in her home with her family, and she's got some some long fingernails with decals on them and she says that the japanese girl from her school did them <sighs> and kylie's dad says looks like pokemon's done them to me <laughs> oh god and she says foreign stuff is classy if you knew something <laughs> kylie what did you do to your fingers carry kashimi done them she's japanese yeah looks more like that pokemon's done to me <laughs> <laughs> Foreign stuff is classy if you knew something. And then later those come into play. That's how she's able to grab onto the thing that the slug, slug coming into her mouth. She digs into it with her nails. Yeah. The mayor's face when he sees it for the first time is really, really good. He just looks like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there's some great reactions. Funny one liners. There's so many one liners. I feel like I could go on and on about them. Yeah. Uh, at like at one <laughs> at one point, they call into the sh- to the sheriff's office to talk to Pam, and he says like you know you need to do this this and this, and he can't hear anything, and he goes Shelby are you nodding? That <laughs> <laughs> was really good. <laughs> the little sister of Kylie Kylie is reading Goosebumps. Yeah, uh-huh. um, I noticed that. I can't remember which book it is though. It's the basement one, I think. Yeah. It was really, really funny. Right. But, I mean, we got through the story kind of quickly because, honestly, kind of not much going on in the story. It just kind of happens. Most of the content here is in the shocks and the responses. Yes, that's true. And that's where, like, almost all the entertainment lies. When they get into some lore building that James Gunn is wont to do, <laughs> uh, when you see the flashback of it invading these other planets and stuff, it's like, does that come back? Like, not really. She she knows stuff, and she mentions it once. That's just, it. Just it gets translated to the other characters, and then it's like, that's it. Now we know the stakes. Like. There's not a lot of actual, like, plot content here. That's true. But it's very, very funny. Very funny, yeah. It's very entertaining, but it is disgusting in certain parts. So with that said, what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? 73. 86. Okay. A slimy B-movie homage oozing with affection for low-budget horror films. Slither is creepy and funny if you've got the stomach for it. Metacritic of 69, dudes, mm-hmm. and cinema score of B minus. It did better than The Burbs. Quite a bit better than The Burbs. Yes, it did. Yeah, I don't know how being creepy and funny, uh, B-movie homages, like, a lot has changed since 1989 when The Burbs came out and it bombed critically and commercially, it it found a life on VHS and television. I feel like Slither was probably, well, first of all, I think you are correct. I think things have changed a lot in the critical viewing of these types of movies. But also, I think Slither appealed to a lot of people because it was, it went so over the top. Yeah. And it went really crazy. Whereas the Burbs had a tendency to dial back. Yeah. Making some of its humor feel cheapened. Okay. That's what I think. You know, I said 69 dudes earlier. This is episode 69. Ah. By the way. 69 dudes! What would you give it? 
I will give it an 80. I was going to say 82, actually. 82? 80, 80, uh, ochenta y dos. Oh, 82 T-W-O. Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, which is what you gave the burbs, actually. Yes. Uh, it's not quite as, like, I know it's only 13 years old and not even that, but it doesn't have the feeling of the classic staying power that the burbs has, in my mind, personally. So it's just a little bit lower, but it's also, like, sharper and faster and better made, I gotta say, sorry, Joe Dante, so it's kind of a trade-off, but I think the burbs, just it being so in- indelibly linked to my childhood, gets it a few more points. I I mean, it's just as hilarious as it is. Yeah. I would say it is slightly funnier than the burbs, because the burbs was really, really funny too. But I feel like Slither, like I said, it took itself a little bit further than the burbs did. Yeah. However... It's not as enjoyable to watch for me because I don't I don't really enjoy gross out yeah. stuff. The burbs also had like a lot of ups and downs where this kind of goes in a in a normal traditional sort of ramp up through the rising action. Whereas like I say, the burbs like, oh, something's happening, and then oh okay, we get a little bit moment to rest, and then oh something new is happening, and then so it felt like you were being strung along a little bit easier, whereas Slither kind of just pulls you straight through the entire movie. Yes, I agree. And also, I really enjoyed Slither. I feel like I'm not doing it justice. I really enjoyed it. You gave it, it an 80. But It's a great score. <laughs> it's not as good as the Burbs because I don't think it knows ex- I mean, it's part like parts of it are really sickening, gross, like scary shit. Then you've got the bad CG. Then you've got this serious like love I, story like where he feels like guilty but like wants to be with her but like eats wants to eat her and yeah and then she really loves him like and then they've got nathan fillion just kind of being the silly cop who's in love with her i'm telling you if this could have been made for a lower budget it would have been a trauma film <laughs> with james gunn's history with trauma and you know just this just came a little bit later than the trauma heyday and was going to be more expensive with the CG required and everything. But if it was a trauma film, it would have been more disgusting. Yeah. And it would have been all practical effects. And it would have been less funny. Yeah. It would have been more like obviously in your face funny, like winking at the camera funny, which is what trauma is. Yeah. All right. That is 2006's Slither. That ends our episode. So what are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week is half of a recommendation week. Yeah? Who recommended this one? Miss Sunshine on Twitter asked us to watch Dreamscape. Dreamscape, which... I had never heard of before. I had. I just never seen. Depending on who you ask, some people might not consider this a horror movie. But IMDb, it listed as one of its genres, so we'll continue and uh, watch it. But there are other movies, like, it It seems to me like it's more like a Temple of Doom sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's really an adventure movie with, you know... Horror elements. Horror elements, yeah. Which 
Temple of Doom certainly had. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, yeah. No, I think an argument could be made that we could watch Temple of Doom on this show. Mm-hmm. It, it is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but so I had never heard of it. So I did very, very little research. I don't like to ruin the movies before I see them. But from what I read, it totally reminded me of The Cell. So we are pairing it with The Cell. Yes. People going into dreams. Yes. Which is what Dreamscape's about. Yes. <laughs> All right. That is next week. Thank you, Miss Sunshine. Yes. Thank you, Miss Sunshine. And thank you to Wes for the burbs and the slither. This was yeah. a great week, Wes. It really was. Thank you so much for recommending these. I'm like super stoked that you did that. This was a really fun week. Yeah. Both of these movies are our highest rated so far this year <laughs> at uh, 83 and a half and 81 respectively. So until next time, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. There you can browse a list of all the movies we have ever reviewed. It's a great way to get into the show if you're just starting. Find a movie you like and listen to that episode. Watch the movie with us. Uh, you can also contact us on Twitter at PodCemetery or email us at PodCemetery at gmail.com. You can recommend movies for us to watch like we've been doing a couple recommendations in the past few weeks because it's a good time to do it. Free of holiday themed horror movies around this time of year. <laughs> uh, so please do make any recommendations or provide any comments. What do you like? What do you wish you could hear? Also, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Five star written ratings are the best thing that you could possibly give us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher of choice you use. Uh, even better than that is sharing us with your friends and even better than that is listening in the first place. So thank you so very much. We love every single one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Goddamn Brenda exploding like a water balloon. Worms driving my friends around like they're goddamn skin cars. People are spitting acid at me, turning you into cottage cheese. And now there's no more fucking goddamn Mr. Pip. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. To the sacred place To see a dream I can't escape Smolens and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition Wow, <laughs> <sighs> damn Yeah, my arm is not long enough for the jerk-off motion that is in my soul right now